0: Hi and welcome to the Denver Diatribe Podcast, culture news and stuff from the most wonk-loving city between Omaha and Salt Lake for the week of January 3rd, 2011, the Urbanism in Denver edition. Our guest this week is Ken Shreppel of local architecture and development blogs, Denver Infill and DenverUrbanism.com. We're going to be talking about the Denver mayoral Race and what we'd like to see from a new mile high his owner, RTD's Fast Track, should we pay to complete the project and if so, how? And what about this new Walmart superstore being built in the tiny, tiny town of Lakeside? Joel Warner is here. John Dicker is out. I'm Jared Jekang, mayor. So, uh, Ken, thanks for coming out and hanging out with us today. We've uh, always been able to circulate in your sphere very often in different media-related ways. Um, Thank you, Jared. It's good to be here. And, uh, Joel, I know that you've been uh, really interested in the Denver mayoral race. How many people do we have uh, signed up to uh, run now, what fifty, ninety, a like, hundred. Yeah,
1: it's at least thirteen. Even though I might have, I might have gone up to fifty or sixty since we last checked. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I think there. Yeah, thirteen people have officially filed. Although we, like, might who are some know. of the big
1: names of that list?
0: Well, what what do we have, Ken? There's, uh, let's see, there's Michael Hancock, city
2: council. Uh, and I, uh, Carol Boygan, I think is also, Carol Boygan, she is planning to announce or she may have already, She's already filed. Has she? Okay.
0: And I think Doug Lee Carr. And Doug Lee Hart. So that's three sitting, uh, city council members. And we have
1: Chris Romer, uh, the son of the former governor and, uh, state, state senator. State senator. And,
0: uh, we have a number of perennial candidates like Paul Noel Fiorino Who's run for governor numerous times, and uh, James Mejia, James Mejia of the Denver on. preschool yeah. program, he's been named, and uh, uh, so we might see some other people throw their hats in the ring. But instead of going through all of that, uh, we thought we'd maybe talk about what we'd like to actually see from a new Denver mayor uh, going forward, and and some of the larger questions and, and a more global view on that. So. Ken, you are guest. Why don't you go first? What are some of the things that would you'd like to see a Denver, a new Denver mayor come to the table with?
2: I think the first thing is, is there's going to be a uh, propensity, I think, for these mayoral candidates to be focusing on the now, the economy, you know, jobs, the budget situation. You know, the city's always having to kind of try to cut the budget to keep it in balance. And I think that would be a real mistake if this election is about kind of this current recession. Um, I think that this is the kind of time uh, that you really need to have a visionary. The way I like to p- kind of put it is, is when you're in the valley, now's the time for us to have a leader who can point to the top of the mountain and say, this is where we're going to go as a city. It's not about the time to talk about how are we going to manage ourselves down here in the valley. So um, I really hope that our mayoral candidates will not be um, distracted by the kind of the minutiae of budget deficits and things like that, but really... Um, Kind of articulate a vision for where Denver wants to be in 2020. Well, and, what,
0: and what would be some of those things though? What... Yeah. Well,
2: of course, my focus is kind of always urbanism and urban development. So along those lines, I think one will, um, one would be transit. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about fast tracks in a little bit, but as you know, fast tracks is really about bringing people from throughout the region into downtown Denver and, and back out. It really doesn't do a whole lot for Denver in terms of connecting its urban neighborhoods. So I think the next mayor has to really Um, start to talk seriously about how are we going to link downtown with Cherry Creek, Capitol Hill, um, Wash Park, City Park, Highlands. I mean, there are all these great urban neighborhoods that uh, really don't have any option other than buses.
0: Okay. And so, Joel, other than uh, looking forward for uh, a mayor to be trying to find ways to have a more visionary view of what Denver's development and sort of urban infrastructure will look
1: like. What other things do you want to see out of uh, some of these candidates talking about? Well, one thing that, you know, I was having some discussion yesterday with some people involved in the local artistic community. You know, and I know there seems to be some momentum, at least some pressure kind of building. I mean, in that is it finally time for Denver to really take a more meaningful kind of stab at, I kind of leveraging and kind of cultivating an even stronger kind of, kind of kind of artistic community. We've talked about things here like the Creative Vitality Index, which is these kind of preliminary kind of attempts to show the value of Denver's creative sector. You know, is it finally time to actually kind of throw some money where where their mouth is and really say, okay, you know, if we really want kind of Denver to become this creative hub, what should be done to? Uh, to make it into I don't know, like a, You know, I know Pittsburgh has really kind of shown a lot of kind of municipal support to their creative communities. I mean, mm-hmm. could we see something like that? And if so, what might that look like? Yeah, I think so. Well,
0: and- you know, I, I mean, I hear you say things. I mean, I think that sounds like a, a great idea. It, you know, Hickenlooper had a number of those initiatives in his first term as well. But I think it is a reality that with when you when you are looking at these budget deficits and having a close, you know. Hundreds of millions of dollars in deficit every single year, and having to slash that budget, it is one thing to talk about some of these programs when you're on the campaign trail, and you can say, you know, oh, I, you know, think that we should have expand uh, streetcars to Cherry Creek, or all these different things, or you know, provide more uh, grant opportunities for artists. I mean, everyone, it's really hard to be against those things, but. When you are faced with the realities of an ongoing budget deficit, in probably in 2012, they'll probably still happen to be closing a budget deficit. How do you actually find the money to do any of these initiatives when all you're really going to be doing <laughs> in the next budgetary year, your first year in office, is probably cutting funds, not adding to it?
2: Yeah, well, you know, um, it doesn't have to be. Big ticket projects. I mean, certainly a streetcar system that would that would be probably uh, you know several hundred million just to get a kind of a starter line going. But some of the things that Joel was talking about, you know, supporting the arts more and so forth, don't have to be you know tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, a, a few million here and there, you know, well placed dollars can go a long way. Back in the Pena and the web administrations. You know, it really was all about the big ticket items. It was, it was the era of the mega projects from airports and stadiums and, you know, convention centers, and the whole bit. Uh, we've kind of run out of mega projects, frankly. I mean, so much of our civic infrastructure in Denver is new within the last 20 years. Yeah. So, um, you know, but there are still, uh, transformative kind of projects or policies that we can look at that don't necessarily require, um, huge, uh, expenditures.
1: What have some other cities done to kind of move beyond the big ticket projects into this more kind of, kind of more kind of modern realm? And what have actually worked? The one that's going to push those things forward.
2: Well, you know, the mayor in Denver—it's a—it's a strong mayoral system, and uh, in fact, you know, there's the old saying that the probably the most powerful person in the state of Colorado is the mayor of Denver. So um, I wouldn't underestimate the ability of the mayor to um move the city in a particular direction and it doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be a, a city program or a city funded thing uh a lot of it, it can just be having the mayor provide that kind of visionary leadership to get the private community and the nonprofit community to all kind of work together it's about sort of pointing off into the future and say this is where we want to go as a city let's all work together and then uh you find a way to get it done through a combination of the public and private sector
0: some of the things that I think that I'm going to be looking for out of the Denver mayor is maybe a little bit more in the weeds within the city and probably a little bit more of a, a cynical view on this, because especially when you're looking at the mood of the electorate and probably what it will be this year, even in a place like Denver, where people are concerned about budget deficits, they are concerned about debt and municipal debt is one of those areas that um, across the nation, a lot of people are looking at as uh, an area of concern. You know, if 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 cities t- that take on have taken on too many uh, take up taken on too much bonded debt, if one of those cities starts to go downhill and maybe even defaults on some of that debt, that could that could even spell really hard times for a city like Denver, which is relatively healthy um, financially. So that said, I think that any Denver mayor is going to have to do something about the Denver Police Department. Um, they're going to have to do something about the disciplinary issues. That's something that you go out into a lot of these neighborhoods. It's one unifying thing that you always hear people talking about. Mm-hmm. We have to find a way to get some of these bad cops out of the police department and find a disciplinary process that's actually going to stick. I think that, you know, this is sort of an aside. I think that John Hickenlooper was a great visionary but when it came down to being, you know, dropping the hammer on certain things and getting things done actually within some of his own departments. I don't think he was as effective. And one of those things that is the the third, we want to talk about the third rail
1: within. uh... I, you know, because the current kind of candidate field is so large, because I think there has been this kind of cynicism lately in Paul, or kind of growing cynicism, I also think, and maybe I'm being naive here, but I do think if someone was to come forward with some real kind of visionary kind of concept in the next few months, to kind of rise above the field you know i don't think it would be fixing the police department i don't think it would necessarily be kind of dealing with trash here. i think if someone had this one really kind of visionary kind of platform i could see you know, well, i, I mean, could see I, the voters I, I, kind of, kind I, of gravitating I can see towards people sort of person.
0: responding to that too but if, if you're going to have that visionary platform right some of these things that are going to make people see the city that denver can be in the future you know that's great if i'm going to take This, any candidate seriously, I have to see them have that visionary ideals and those things that they want to push forward, but then have the, have the gall and some of the, uh, wherewithal to be able to do some of the things that are with, you know, the really in the weeds stuff within the city and county of Denver that need to be fixed, that need to be sort of overhauled to gain some of the rep, you know, gain some of those revenues back or get those, some of those cost savings. To be able to fund some of these big visionary projects. So I I want to see someone that that has 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 both of those abilities, not just the ability to say, oh, I think that, you know, we we need to invite more corporations in downtown Denver and invite, you know, and build all these great big projects. Um that to me is really easy to do when uh you don't really have the other side of the coin, which is some of the really difficult things that need to be overhauled. Well there
2: are you know, keep in mind that there's issues. That you campaign on or that you you talk about during the campaign, and then there are some issues that you maybe don 't um, some are not that are not going to resonate with voters or voters aren 't going to care about, but may be actually really important to kind of the efficiency of of the city government so as a candidate, you can have some ideas of ways to improve the budget situation that um, or to make just you know the government more efficient that you may not necessarily be out there campaigning on, because mm-hmm. uh, you know, average voter might be like, yeah, you know, that's that's a detail that I don't have to worry about. But that's something that you will just have to take care of once you become mayor. Um, but those some of those details can be very important. So I think you know, as far as you know, I have not made a decision yet on you know who I'm supporting, and and what I'm going to want to hear is what's that big vision. But I also would like to hear some ideas, you know, some of those smaller things though, that may be able to make a difference.
1: I guess I want to go back to one question, just these big picture potential concepts. If you were going to point to some other cities that, that are doing some kind of creative forward thinking, um, kind of visionary kind of approaches beyond the big ticket, like developments, like what cities would you point to Ken?
2: Um, I would look Northwest, uh, Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver. Here's, here's a great example. Um, In Vancouver, They have a very clear city policy that their priority in how they um, uh, spend their money within the public right-of-way is number one, the pedestrian, number two, bicycles, number three, transit, number four, the movement of goods, and number five, the private automobile. That is their ranking, and it's not just talk. They back it up, and their budget reflects that priority. So that would be an example where... You know, we, we've got a certain amount of money that we spend every year for capital improvement projects within the public right-of-way, essentially for transportation-related um, type you know, improvements. So it's, it's not that we would necessarily have to increase that the size of that pie. I mean, we're only going to have so much money that we would have available to us for those kind of improvements. But how you spend that money can obviously change. And so, you know, I don't I don't have these exact numbers, but just generally, you know, we probably spend like 95% of our capital improvement prod, uh, budget in the public right of way on a private automobile and just a very small amount for the pedestrian and for bicycles. Well, what if we, you know, kind of flip that around or we started to make an adjustment in those percentages? Because uh, our current mayor has uh, set a goal for having, I think it's something like 10% mode share for trans, uh, for bicycles by like 2020 sure. or something like that i can't remember the exact number but how are we how are we going to get there if we continue to spend all of our money on streets and on the automobile and not put some money behind you know some serious bicycle infrastructure in this community so that would be another example where it's not necessarily spending
0: more money it's about how You're we just spend spending the money them in a that different we have. way and you know that is one thing kind of along those lines that I will give the Hickenlooper administration a lot of credit for, because I don't think they've gotten enough credit for it, was the overhaul of the zoning code. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that was a, a multi-year process. It was It's such a boring topic a to talk about. But when you silence. want to talk about something that 20 mm-hmm. years from now is going to have a massive effect on the way Denver looks and feels, it was looking at ways to... You know, increase density in certain areas, loosen up and get rid of old archaic zoning regulations. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a, a horrendous process that they went through. And I think I agree. but uh, maybe we should move on from there. And speaking of multimodal transportation and mm-hmm. one of the things that Hickenlooper always as he goes to the uh, governor's office is was mentioned along with his name was gaining or being the person that was out front and gaining approval for the fast tracks, RTD's fast tracks expansion. Ken, uh, maybe run it through that really quickly. Where are we at with that expansion and what's the big question that we're facing right now in terms of that project?
2: Sure. Back in 2004, voters did approve a four tenths of a percent sales tax increase for that. It was to build 119 miles of new rail, light and light rail and commuter rail. Sort of radiating out um, from in various directions from downtown. Unfortunately, a combination of an overestimation of the sales tax collections and a um, historic and quite dramatic increase in the increase in the cost of uh, construction materials caused RTD's um, kind of estimate of what they needed and what it was going to cost to you know get out of whack. And so they basically have about a two billion dollar shortfall. In being able to complete the program as promised by like 2017, 2018. And, th- and now that
0: the total cost has gone up to what, $6.5 was the last I number I heard so. thrown around? Right.
2: So, um, th- but they've made a lot of progress. I mean, the West Corridor is uh, under construction and that will open in 2013. And that's the one that goes out into
0: what, Lakewood?
2: Lakewood and Golden. Okay. Yep. And then they also just recently broke ground on two additional um, Fast Tracks lines um, the line out to DIA. The East Corridor and the, what's called the Gold Line, which will head out west to Wheat Ridge in Arvada. Um, And our DAA is going to be done in 2015. 2015, right. And and those lines are being built as part of a a public private partnership called the Eagle P3. And so, um, but but those are, are underway. The problem is, is that at that point, we've kind of don't have, RTD doesn't really have much money left. To pursue the remaining corridors, which is North Metro straight north up to I twenty five, and so like 160th. going through like
0: Thornton and yeah, North Plain up that exactly.
2: way, exactly. And then the line out to uh, Boulder, the Northwest corridor, they'll be able to build a short segment of that as part of the Eagles uh, P three project. And then there's the I two twenty five extension from where it stops now at Nine Mile, and taking that up through Aurora and having it then connect up with the line
1: to Dia uh, at uh, like Peoria. So the really ambitious stuff, kind of the parts that were really going to help kind of connect more of the front range with Denver right now, just don't have any funding.
2: And, you know, the, in terms of which corridors kind of are getting the money and which ones are not really was not based on anybody sitting down and saying, well, let's, let's put our, let's spend the money here first. It was just that the, the line out to DIA and the line to, um, uh, the Gold Line, El Tarvada, those two just were further along in the environmental assessment process than some of the other corridors, because, you know, this has kind of been a process that's been going on for uh, many years, and those were just further along, just like the West Corridor was um, the furthest along, and that's why it was the first line to be construction, constructed under Fast Tracks. So it's kind of nothing against Boulder or the North Metro or kind of the folks along I-225, it was just that those lines were just not you know, far enough along in the planning and the environmental assessment stages so that once the fast tracks money starts rolling in, they weren't the first ones to get funded. Um, so the question now, and, and there's actually kind of two important questions. One is, is um, going back to this Eagle P3 project for the, the West, or excuse me, the uh, Gold Line and the DIA line, uh, RTD estimated that uh, project to be, I think, somewhere in the $1.2 billion range. And it came in, uh, after the private developer or the private uh, operators who are going to build and, and, and operate this line, they uh, came in, it, it ended up being $300 million less. So RTD has now this $300 million that they need to figure out what to do with because it's actually money that they, they kind of have now or, or it's already money that's kind of been committed. So the question is, and they they have kind of these three options, one is is do you take that $300 million and do you apply it toward just like one corridor, you know, maybe try to build out that I-225 segment or whatever. Or do you kind of just take a little bit of that $300 million and apply it to to all corridors? Okay. Which means that you're probably not going to get a whole lot out of any one corridor, but at least you're kind of spreading the money around. Um, And then the third option is to actually just use that money to complete final engineering and design for all the remaining corridors. Okay. Sort of okay. A, the soft cost of these projects is, is doing that. So it seems like design. option
0: two and three, both of those are dependent on uh, voters actually approving funding to actually fund the rest of it, right? Because that's that's another thing that they're going to have to do, right? Where, or if they, they could
1: just use it as leverage, kind of kind of dangling yeah. out what they... Well, okay, well, I guess how likely do you think that that we are going to have the same type of kind of region-wide... Unified support that we saw with the general kind of fast tracks right. passing.
2: Well, I think in part it depends on how large the tax increase is. Um, certainly, the smaller the tax increase, the you know probably the more support you're going to get for it. And this is a
0: sales tax,
2: sales increase. tax increase, right? So RTD has said um, ever since the, the deficit kind of you know became known several years ago is that. Um, If they do not get any additional uh, sales tax, you know, an an increase, then the lines that are under construction, those will be built out, no problem. Um, And then we'll have to kind of pay as we go to fund the rest of the corridor, uh, the rest of the corridors, and we won't be able to build out the fast tracks entire program until uh, 2042.
1: And at that point, we're going to have flying cars.
2: We don't even need to worry (laughs) about this anymore. So they have laid out um, some scenarios here. A four tenths of a percent sales tax increase, which is what we have proved in you know, you know, four. So essentially it's another it's four, a double of that yeah. tax. Um, that will allow RTD under even you know the most kind of draconian kind of environments of the economy and construction costs, that would pretty much allow them to complete the program as planned by twenty eighteen. So that would kind of finish it off kind of as planned. Uh, three tenths of a percent sales tax, they can do about three quarters of the rest of the program, but then they wouldn't, and, and that would be by 2022, but then there would still be some future money that they'd have to figure out how to, uh, to, to find from somewhere to complete that remaining kind of one quarter. And then there's a two, you know, two tenths of a percent option and then a one tenth percent option. And for each of those, you can complete less of the program and it'll it'll be pushing it
1: back. Hickenlooper was really kind of the key rallying figure the first time around. Mm -hmm. Who is this going to fall on to be the person to get out there and kind of bang on the pulpit and say, this is what we need to do?
2: Well, before I answer that question, let me throw in one additional wrinkle that is now being talked about, kind of relating to all this. And that is, is in 2011, the major league football stadium, Sales tax of one tenth of one percent will expire for Invesco Field, for Invesco Field, right, or Mile High Stadium, as we Denverites (laughs) would like to refer to it. Um, So one scenario is: well, if we say let's renew the one tenth of the sales tax for the stadium and uh, apply that toward fast tracks, then let's say if we then increase RTD's actual sales tax by another one tenth of a percent the reality is is we get a two tenths of a percent increase if we use the um, you know the football stadium which you know is
0: not really then going to be an increase it's just maintaining or continuing an existing it, tax. it's sort of one of those ways that politicians like to say well it's not a tax increase we're just extending right. this yeah. this current tax which uh, you know it's it's a tax increase I mean that that would it would that Tax that we approved for, you know, Pat Boland's, uh, majestic stadium down there would, would lapse and it would fall by whatever. Yeah, voters are much more likely to swallow
1: that because it's just, it's just the way people it's sort of like, well, I'm
0: not going to be paying any more. So, and keep in mind, Jared, that the
2: football stadium tax was actually a continuation of the Coors field tax which was authorized for 20 years, but we paid off Coors Field in like nine years or something. And so the argument was, well, let's just continue the tax for the remaining 10 years that the voters have already approved, but we can get yet a second stadium out of it.
1: The tangled webs we weave.
2: uh, Yes. So anyway, so that's an additional wrinkle. So one thing you can do is kind of look at this and say, well, maybe it's some kind of a combination of an increase in RTD's sales tax plus allowing the stadium tax to be kind of put toward RTD, and, you know, we'll kind of hopefully get there. Um, Going back, though, to Joel, your point, I think um, when it comes to, you know, who's going to be the kind of the advocate for this, well, certainly the the new Denver mayor. I mean, whoever that may be, at least there's the potential for that person to play that role. But another person, speaking of John Hickenlooper, is... John Hickenlooper. Yeah. I mean, he'll be the governor. Um, and while the governor certainly has to take a broader statewide perspective of things, 60 percent, 70 percent, something like that of, of Colorado citizens live in the Denver metro region and clearly having a comprehensive and successful uh, transit system in our state's largest city and region is a uh, an important thing from a statewide perspective yeah, and, and
0: that's already becoming part of his platform as governor i mean he's really going to take a lot of the same notes from uh Governor Ritter and just sort of extend that as sort of the new energy economy. I think you'll see a lot of the same themes. Yeah. I really don't foresee any, as far as the new Denver mayor, and especially while this campaign is going on with the current field of candidates, I would be very hard pressed to point to any one of these people as saying, this is going to be the person that is going to be the. John Hickenlooper of 2004, mm-hmm. mainly because it's, it's a totally different world we're living in right now. In 2004, the economy was good. You know, Denver was growing. We were looking at these things that the idea of expanding out this transit system was a very, very new idea. And um, what we're what we're asking for now is sort of a, they're coming back to the table, right? They're coming back to voters like politicians often do with some of these really big projects where you know, for one reason or another, maybe because the estimates for how much it was going to cost were so artificially low, you know, and maybe not realistic enough, but they start building out these projects. They get everyone half pregnant with them, um, to use a term that I've heard a lot of construction (laughs) people use. And I really like, and then they say like, you know, anyone who's ever had a contractor come in and your bathrooms being redone or something like that. Oh, well, it's more expensive now. Right. And so you can't, Really back out of it. It's either, well, we back out and we sort of let go of everything that we have, or we give you more money, which is what they're going to say now. People are going to be very, very reluctant voters to approve a new um, tax on this. So here's my
1: assumption. And this is just not really based on anything of any real kind of reality. But my assumption is, is that I, yes, I think in the near term, it's going to be a real challenge in the next couple of years. Once we start seeing the current lines. To fruition. Once we actually see the line kind of moving toward DAA, once we start seeing, uh, you know, uh, Cal- uh, Calatrava's new kind of visionary kind of station mm-hmm. and other constructions associated with that line of DAA, I think the excitement and the momentum is going to build. And I think at that point, no matter who the person is who's going to be championing, whether it's Hickenlooper or the new mayor or whoever, I think at that point you're going to see these communities kind of want to be part of that momentum, so I think Jared, you, you might be right in the short term. I think in the next two or three years there might be some kind of thawing of that of that type of hesitancy because of the money that that's already being spent. It's you know it, it's still going to be tough. There's absolutely no
2: doubt about it. Even if the economy starts to really improve in the next year or two, it'll still be tough when RTD goes back for this next vote. But I think it's it's uh, feasible. I think it can
0: happen. Well, certainly, it's going to be a big issue um, in 2011, and one that's going to affect uh, the mayor's race it's in Denver and the region in the future. And I'm sure we could talk about this and wonk on for a long time. But we are going to move on and talk about a Super Walmart opening in this very small town of Lakeside. Can you have a uh, a new posting on denverurbanism.com dot com that kind of looks into this topic? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it and what's up with what's up with Lakeside.
2: Well, the the post that you referred to was um, authored by uh, a friend of mine, Brent, who is an attorney and planner and kind of engineer, all three. And he's written a, a really good uh, post on this topic. But really, in summary, uh, Lakeside is a tiny municipality. I mean, it's a it's an incorporated place that sits uh, basically at roughly the kind of the northwest corner of 44th Avenue in Sheridan. And it's where the old little Lakeside Amusement
1: Park is. Yep. When you, how, yeah, like, how big when you say it? tiny, I mean how many people are we talking about? Here?
2: Well, tiny in both population and in geography. Okay. It, it includes the amusement park. It includes uh, like eight or nine homes along the west side of Sheridan, a couple of like strip malls, Lake Rhoda, and then um, a, a large undeveloped site, which used to be the location of Lakeside Mall, which was a mall built in the 50s. That was torn down back uh, in 2005, yeah, or 2006, a couple of years ago, yeah. right? And it's kind of you know looking to be redeveloped. Um, Joel, I believe in the 2000 census, the town of Lakeside had 20 people. Would that
0: make it the smallest municipality in the state? Um, or do you I, have some smaller? There's one, There's one other, other, but I would actually say that you know it, when the when the new census figures come out, I. I would be very surprised if Lakeside wasn't going to be named the smallest municipality because in 2000, there used to be a um, uh, a trailer park there, and that's since gone. That's since uh, been torn down or condemned or something like that, and now there's only five or six houses or seven houses that are there, yeah. and some of them look uninhabited. I would, I would venture to guess that there's probably a, a maybe a dozen people that still call themselves Lake, Lakeside residents. Right. Uh you know, it's kind of part of our tradition of self
2: determination and that if enough people get together and say we want to form our own municipality,
1: you can do that. So we could do it right here today. We could could we make Jared's house where we are recording right now. But yeah, That's my my
0: block well, right, would have a higher population in this town, right? <laughs>
2: Except Jared you'd have to first um succeed from secede from the city of Denver. Which I just think could do. do. Which we um, could build a moat around your which I think would, would be difficult.
1: Okay.
0: But but you know Lakeside really. it you know has its own town council and I think that probably every single resident is a member of this town council. It has a mayor, it has <laughs> a clerk and recorder, it has a police department, it has a little tiny uh, city of Lakeside jail, it has a judge. So. It's cute.
1: Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it is a, it is for all intents and purposes a
1: functioning city. So now right. with this backstory, so so where are we now? What's going on now?
2: So um after the Lakeside Mall was. Uh, demolished um and I, I don't know the entire backstory but at some point you know lakeside and walmart started to talk in a developer and uh the bottom line is is that they have sort of quietly uh because you know it is a, a private deal they have reached an agreement to build this uh, super walmart at uh at the location of the old mall so anyway there's a lot of reasons why people don't like walmart but in this particular case, there's, I think, a couple of issues. Its location um, on the lake and the fact that we are, when I say we, kind of the development community, and particularly here in, in Metro Denver, you know, we're really trying to um, increase the, uh, the sustainability of development in Denver and, and the kind of the urb- urbanness of development in Denver. Um, we want to get away from large single use, uh, developments that are surrounded by a sea of asphalt and trying to get into more mixed use developments. And imagine if you would, then, um, this site, it could be another Belmar. It could be another Highland Gardens village. Uh, it could be something really special, particularly with the lake there. And we don't have a whole lot of lakeside development opportunities in Colorado, and then you got the amusement park, and it could really be a, a cool urban sort of urban entertainment village. Area. Yeah, um, but no, it's going to be well, a and that's uh, Walmart
0: that that was one of the interesting things because it is such a it is such a central location it could have been something like a belmar in lakewood where they tore down the old mall and sort of built something that was a lot more mixed use and um you know more replicated a downtown area yeah. and a lot of those types of new urbanism type developments these large scale ones they rely a lot on certain tax incentives other ways that cities and municipalities larger ones can sort of apply pressures to get the types of developments they want to see out of these things and, and provide that when you're a tiny town where your mayor is also your police chief, you don't really have the, uh, I guess the sort of intellectual weight. You don't have that sort of force that a, a larger city can say, Hey, this is what we want to see. And this is how we want to do it. It's kind of like, well, developer, a you bought this big piece of property. Now we're going to be our sales tax revenue. And when you, when you, when you're a, you know, a town that small, and you have a Walmart, a super Walmart, and the the amount of money that in sales tax revenue that's going to be providing your town is just just overwhelming. How much money they're they're going to be making out of this? Because they don't really have to provide that many city services to people. They right. don't really have any expenses. I mean, it's it, it is the hugest cash cow that could plop down right inside their borders. Yeah. I and the mean, other
1: question, I mean, are we being overly snobby here, kind of kind of knocking on Walmart? I mean, yes. You know there are many, many reasons to just dislike the concept of walmart and i you know I subscribe to basically all those reasons, however, you know it was also said that there are still there's a huge chunk of the population that you know that for better or worse still relies on Walmart as kind of this necessary shopping location and mm-hmm. you know we do yeah and
2: that may that may be the case and and there's absolutely no reason why Walmart couldn't be part of this project but the way, what we're going to get is we're going to get a big Walmart surrounded up by a sea of asphalt. And there's, but there's no reason why you couldn't have incorporated the Walmart into a more mixed use um, type project. I mean, look at what they're doing in Belmar. They're, they just, it's either finished or they're just under, um, still constructing a super target that's got a parking garage and it's very attractive and it's blending right in with the rest of Belmar. So it's, I know what you're saying, Joel, but it's not necessarily just an, it's not really an anti-Walmart thing. It's an anti-putting a big traditional yeah. mal- a Walmart next to a lake.
0: But yeah. let me ask you this, Ken, the fact that Lakeside Amusement Park's little train that goes around the lake yeah. is going to go right by that Walmart. If they put a stop there, would that qualify as a trans-oriented <laughs> development? <laughs>
1: I All the kids can kind of get off and buy their... That's one way of looking their at
0: it. Okay, and speaking of that, let's move on. And uh, quickly, we're going to go through our loves and hates uh, for this week. And Ken, you're familiar with our love and hate thing, right? I am now.
2: Uh, well... I thought about this, and I thought I can't, I can't come on to the diatribe and have my first appearance and to do a hate. That just doesn't seem right. Aww. So particularly in this holiday season, and we have you know this election coming up and everything. So in 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 the spirit of being positive, I'm going to offer a love, which is um, I'm going to I'm going to throw my love today at the 14th Street Project, which you know is in downtown Denver, 14th Street from Market to Colfax. Basically, it's its it's entire length as it goes through downtown. It is getting a complete makeover. It's um, being funded in part from one of the bond, uh, from the bond issue, uh, bond program that we uh, passed a few years ago. And uh, one lane of traffic on 14th is being removed, and a bike lane will be added. And then the entire street will be really rebuilt, new sidewalk, um, lighting street furniture, pedestrian lights, um, you know, public art, signage, you know, the whole package. So um, it's really going to transform uh, 14th Street. And, of course, there's been billions
0: of dollars of public and private investment along 14th in the last few years. So. And so this is all an effort to kind of draw some of that foot traffic and that activity away from just the 16th Street Mall and sort of spread it out because, as right. we know, you walk along 16th Street Mall in downtown and it feel like you're in a real downtown active place. You go one block off and you might as well be in Cheyenne, Wyoming or downtown Salt Lake City or
1: something like that. Joel? I actually have a love-hate this week. I have a little bit of a hybrid. I'm going to say that I do love the new parking meters. I love the fact I can just get out and use my credit card and I don't have to worry about it. That being said, however, I do hate the fact that I'm pretty sure that, that none of the screens actually illuminate. So at night, it's actually really, or just when it gets dark now, like four thirty or five p.m., it's really difficult to actually see the screens on the new meters. So I'll leave it at that. Huh.
0: Okay. Well, I have a love. I was on a uh, another radio program last week, and one of the other guests was at large counts Denver City Councilman Doug Linkhart, who was also uh, one of the filed mayoral candidates. And we were talking about medical marijuana, and a question came in, uh, and Doug Linkhart kind of within the context of everything he was talking about, said that he actually personally supports the legalization of marijuana. Huh. And uh, I was jabbering on about something else and it wasn't until like a day later probably when i was in the shower that it struck me that um, a a a pretty front-runner mayoral candidate for denver is actually saying that he would support the legalization of marijuana not just medical marijuana but actually the legalization of marijuana okay so i think that's gonna be it for this week we went on really long this time but that is to be expected when you have someone like ken treppel here check out his blogs DenverInfill.com and denverurbanism.com we're at denverdiatribe.com we're also on itunes and twitter at denverdiatribe so uh we will be back next week with john dicker and getting a preview of the geek Bowl. so thanks for listening and we are out